Hi and welcome to Infants Cafe. Today on the show, Mike Robbins. How's it going, buddy? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good considering that we're in the biggest crisis since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, it's crazy. I know. It's such a, it's like the world's turned upside down all of a sudden. We're trying to figure this whole thing out, right? Yeah. It's just like, it's like every day is like an event that would be big enough, like in, for like, it would be like a whole year's worth of stories for each day. But it's like it's, every day is happening. So like you just can't keep up with all the stuff. Yeah. It's, it really is amazing. I mean, the experience of waking up every day and checking the news and knowing what's going on is just we're having to adapt and adjust and change all the time. I mean, I imagine even between the time you and I have this conversation, it gets recorded and it goes out, a bunch of things will change. So some of what we even talk about might seem old by the time people listen to us, right? Yeah, I mean, as long as we can see the peak of the curve, then I think we should be fine. Um, yeah. In the moment the the curve is accelerating still but it can't keep accelerating it has to be a sort of leveling off in italy although they still have a lot of deaths and it's terrible but the there is less deaths than there was on the weekend so right yeah it's uh it's definitely an interesting bizarre thing you know and i uh at least here in the u.s a lot of the leaders and politicians and celebrities and people just keep using the phrase, we're all in this together, which is very true. And, you know, when I wrote this book last year with that title, I wasn't thinking it was going to come out right in the midst of a global pandemic. So it's been kind of a strange experience to hear that phrase being uttered by so many people prominently. Yeah. And it's not possible to communicate with all your friends and say, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? Because everyone's going through traumatic experience every day. Right. Right. It's true. Although it is interesting, the desire to connect has been, at least for me, I know, being home with my family over the last couple of weeks and just really wanting to reach out and talk to friends and people, some who I talk to normally and others who I'm not in touch with all that often. There seems to be this, you know, desire in so many of the corporations, the companies that, that me and my team partner with. It's always seen as like a benefit to get to work from home, to get to work remotely, which it can be. <laughs> but right, right now, the fact that everyone has to, all of a sudden you're like, hey, I like when I get to choose to work from home, but not when I have to work from home. So it is really fascinating just to see all of that unfold. Yeah, normally, though, when you get to work from home, you can like go to a nice cafe and chill out. You right. can go, go to your visit family and work there, work at your friend's houses, work at your granddad's houses. I shouldn't be saying all this, but that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I mean, again, when we're forced to do something and we're confined to it, all of a sudden it seems very different than when we get to choose to do it and there's more freedom with it, right? Yeah. Even the politicians, it's like every day is new for them. They weren't, they weren't yeah. trained to deal with this kind of level of craziness. No. No, and I do. I actually, regardless whether I agree or disagree with any politicians, I've been feeling a lot of empathy for anyone in positions of leadership in companies and otherwise having to make decisions. What's the right thing to do? What's the best thing to do? What's the safest thing to do? What's the human impact? What's the economic impact? I mean, there's so many things just in my own business with my own team. We're having to make decisions every day that I keep saying, I've been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> I've never dealt with this before. I don't know. And I keep saying to my team, I think this is the right thing. Let's try and see what happens. We may decide in two days or, you know, two weeks that that was the dumbest thing we've ever done, but we're just trying to pivot and adjust as best we can. It's almost impossible to keep a level head and make decisions, you know, intellectual yeah. decisions right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. 
it's, it's very tempting true. just to curl up into a ball in the corner and put the Netflix <laughs> on and not do anything but that's the the thing you just can't do right now yeah this is the time where you have to um because we don't know what's going to happen with the economy and uh, right. we can't depend on the government handing out 80% of our salary that's just not sustainable so. no not at all. Well, I keep saying anybody who tells you that they know what's going to happen or how this is going to play out, they're either lying or they're crazy because I don't think anybody has any idea where this is all going. Um, but there is, you know, I mean, again, without being Pollyanna about it or, you know, turning away from the, the, the serious nature of this and the impact of it, I do think there's an opportunity for each of us individually and for us collectively if we can stay open in the midst of all this chaos. There's a ton of opportunity to learn to grow to evolve which is you know i mean they say you know there's all these cliches in the world but sort of uh, necessity is the mother of invention i mean just think of all the ways we've all personally had to adjust just in the last couple weeks how we work how we communicate what we do how we utilize technology and while it's not ideal and it, there's some challenges it's forcing all of us to step out of our comfort zones and have to try oh i guess like can i do it this way can we do that virtually why not i guess we'll try and see what happens. It's going to be interesting when the dust settles and we get past all of this. What is the new normal on how we interact and how we operate and how we influence and how we, you know, communicate and work together? I do think it's going to change. And my hope, again, without being overly uh, naively, you know, optimistic about it, is there can potentially be some real positive aspects of this ultimately. Yeah, yeah. So is your business damaged quite a lot? I mean, not, not damaged, is... You're kind of an events-based kind of person. You go do events and things like that. Yeah. I mean, so for the last 20 years, I've been speaking, you know, mostly here in the U.S., although I do travel some internationally. And I do about 90 to 100 speaking engagements, live speaking engagements a year. That's the primary focus of the business. I mean, I've, you know, I've written books. My fifth book just came out. And you know, a lot of other content creation have a podcast and other things, but the primary way that me and my team and we generate revenue is by me going out to speak. So that's been turned upside down. We've had 15 events either rescheduled or canceled in the last couple of weeks, and I'm sure more are coming. So, you know, it's scary. It's challenging. It's, um, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and have never seen anything like this. Like, I don't think any of us have. But what we're also doing is having to pivot. Can we deliver you know, all the programs that I deliver and some of the other people on our team deliver virtually, which we absolutely can. We've done that before. Um, can we create more digital content that we can get out to our clients and, you know, to the organizations that partner with us? You know, we work with companies like Google and Wells Fargo and Microsoft and Schwab and, you know, these big organizations. And I literally just got off um, a call with some of our friends from Schwab and they were just saying, we're trying to adjust and figure out, you know, how do we support our employees? How do we support our advisors? How do we support our investors? And everybody's having to connect and communicate virtually. So, again, it's significantly impacted. You know, my business has been turned upside down in the last couple of weeks. And I'm hoping and, and praying to some degree that there's going to continue to be some opportunity. But uh, we'll just have to see how it all plays out. Yeah, I know, I know um, several, several friends of mine that have been affected by events. Um, not been events been shut down, and uh, yeah, imagine if like if you have an event that you've made and you just you're a small business and then you just like you can't you can't do it and you've invested all this money in it and it's hard to ensure these kind of things unless you're a huge company. 
It's true. I mean, and I don't think, you know, the, the thought of, I mean, we think about sort of acts of God or you think of, you know, hurricanes or earthquakes or things that could potentially happen. But usually if those things happen, they're specific to a finite place and time. And this thing, you know, there were businesses just a few weeks ago that were thriving that are shut down right now and indefinitely shut down. And we don't know when that's coming back. I mean, and for all the conversations I've been having with clients of ours and people about, well, how do we work from home better? And how do we get set up to do it? And how do we have virtual meetings? Think about all the people who can't work from home. Yeah. Right. You work, you work in a restaurant and the restaurant's shut. You work in a bunch of different industries that like they're not operating right now. And so what do you do? You sit at home and wait for things to come back to normal so you can go back to work. So it's again, I mean, not that we didn't know that the thought of a global pandemic was an, was a scenario or a situation like I watched, like many people have watched Bill Gates's TED talk from four years ago that now <laughs> has gone viral all over again where he was talking about this could happen. Yeah. But I don't think at least, you know, and, and I operate in circles in Silicon Valley and other places with a lot of really smart, forward thinking people who are constantly talking about the future and even talking about threats. I never thought or heard anyone have significant conversation where it really resonated with me of what this would actually mean. And obviously a lot of us have woken up to, oh, this is a really big deal and it can bring everything to a halt. So, you know, I also think just on a personal level, I said to my wife the other day, can you imagine people who are, you know, having babies right now and having to go to the hospital to have the baby or having weddings that you've planned for a whole year and there's like, no one's coming to the wedding, the wedding's not happening. I mean, so many significant life events, you know, sports, I mean, here in the US, and I know where, where you are over in, in Europe and in the UK, I mean, sports are such a big part of culture. You know, one of our daughters who's 11, her dance group was supposed to dance at halftime at the Golden State Warriors game. And we were so excited about it. And it's like, well, that's not happening. And, you know, I mean, from the superficial to the more significant, just, you know, life is completely different. I think what happened was, and uh, I got caught out of it as well, is that we see these viruses come up like bird flu, mad cow disease, Ebola, yep. and we see this thing that is defeated within a matter of months, weeks, um, right. potentially years, but not that big an impact to society. Okay, a few million cows got killed, but there's not people dying in the streets. Right. Um, so we're used to overcoming these things, and our generation didn't experience the fear of World War Two. Okay, mm -hmm. people in the 70s, and was the Cuban Missile Crisis, that's probably the biggest fear event that's happened since uh, right. World War Two, I'd say. And we're sort yeah. of used to overcoming, we're not used to being defeated by something in such a way. And it's sort of like a perfect storm. If you imagine an, an, a lot of accidents happen, you have lots of small things go wrong at the same time, and that's what caused an accident. You know, maybe someone didn't look yeah. at the right, the light, the, the brakes didn't work, so, and someone was in a rush. So you've got this virus coming up that's got a mixture of properties that make it really dangerous, and they all happen at the same time. And uh, it's a very low likelihood yeah. event. You have the infectivity, you have the persistence on um, on surfaces, asymptomatic, um, you know, incubation period, and potentially deadly com combination. Com uh, complications on the lungs. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and I think, you know, for us here in, in the U.S., I mean, the only thing close to this, and it's it different in very many ways, was 9-11 for us in the sense that something happened and it had a huge impact on our entire country, even though it was sure. isolated to New York and Washington, D.C., but it changed life, I mean, around the world, but specifically did, here yeah. in America. And 
you know, with that, or even, you know, we've had a lot of significant weather events. I live in California. We've had some serious fires over the last few fire seasons. We've had some big storms and floods in different parts of the country here in the U.S. where that happens. But even again, when those things happen, they're serious, they're significant, especially for the people impacted. But it seems like it's this thing, you know, like Ebola, as an example, sort of on the other side of the world or the country. It's like, oh, we'll send money. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, we see the the video footage. But for this, it's like, again, it's impacted the world in a way. And we've never experienced something like this. And we're right in the middle of it right now, which is, look, I mean, part of what I've learned over the years in my own work and what I actually focus on when I work with organizations and teams and leaders is how do you embrace uncertainty? Because the truth is life is is full of uncertainty and individuals and organizations that are able to succeed in life in general, in business, have the ability to navigate uncertainty more effectively than those who don't. And the truth of the matter is like, I'm usually not that comfortable when things are super uncertain, like most humans, right? I like, but the reality is certainty is kind of a mental construct anyway. Like what's really certain, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month anyway. But when something like this happens and it has a huge impact, it's just a reminder. It is like an accident. It's like when someone dies suddenly, who's really healthy, they either get sick weirdly or they get into an accident. You're like, wait a minute, you know, a few months back here in the US, one of our greatest, you know, sports heroes, Kobe Bryant died in a, you know, helicopter accident. It was tragic. It was terrible. And he was one of these people sort of seemed like larger than life. And when you see something like that happen and his daughter and there were other children involved in the accident, it was so sad and so tragic. But for me, I know it was as the father of daughters myself, this reminder of like, of course, I know that life is fragile and that it's not forever. But when that happens, it stops us in our tracks and we go, wait a minute, what am I doing and why am I doing it and what really matters? And, you know, so I do think, you know, this is a pretty intense global reminder for all of us. And it's causing all of us, whether we like it or not, to stop and slow down and reevaluate. So, again, my hope is that, you know, the damage that's done to people and to the economy, you know, is the least amount it can possibly be, even though it's already been significant, is probably going to be more significant. But can we collectively go through this experience and learn from it and allow it to change us in a positive way, not simply just be freaked out about the next potential pandemic? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel closer to my work colleagues now, even though we're not seeing each other in the office because we're like getting together on conference calls every right? day and you know, chilling out at the end. And we can, yeah, we're all realizing we're going through this thing together. I hope that yeah. it makes the world a closer place. We can look past our nationality differences and cultures and realize we are we all bleed the same color, you know. And uh, right, we can um, just help each other more as a race, a human race. Well, and you know, it's interesting about that. I totally agree with you, and it, I'm hearing that from so many people. I feel the same way, closer to so many people that I do business with or have I- interactions that are more professional. And now we're coming to each other, connecting in each other's homes, and people are talking about their kids are at home or they're worried about their aging parents or all the different things that are coming up. But when I wrote this book, we're all in this together. The idea on the surface was like to focus on teams and how do you create a culture of high performance and trust and belonging, which is a lot of what I've researched over the last 20 years. But my secondary reason, and I write about it in the book, is more at least here in the U.S. and around the world, we've been in such an intense sense of divisiveness that seems to have gotten to a fever pitch politically, racially, ethnically, all of these, like so much us and them and good and bad and right and wrong and you and and all of this craziness that's really been, I think, irrespective of our politics or our background, 
I don't think anybody feels like this is good and healthy. I don't think there's a ton of people that, and there may be people that try to exploit it. That's a whole separate thing. But in general, most humans that I know, wherever they're from in the world, when I talk to them about the divisiveness, they're not saying, oh, that's a great thing. That's a really good, <laughs> we're making progress with more division, right? And so what I was trying to write about is like, without oversimplifying it, what I've learned over the many years of working with so many different people from so many different backgrounds is that while it's important for us to try to understand and appreciate and have respect for all the differences, we're way more alike than we are different to what you were just saying, right? We bleed the same color. We have a lot of the same fears and doubts and worries as human beings. We have a lot of the same desires for our families and our well-being and our success. And like we really are in this life as humans together. Now, again, I did not think, well, I'm going to write this book and it's going to come out in the midst of this crazy global crisis. But I think, again, it's reminding us of the common humanity that we share, even if, you know, you and I are halfway across the world from each other having this conversation right now and people are listening to us on devices wherever they are all over the world. But like we're separated by time and space and now even more so that we're isolated, but we're all sort of universally connected. Yeah. So your business, what kind of problems are, are, are clients coming to you with and what kind of solutions are you offering them? There's quite famous brands oh. that you've worked with, actually. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, you know, when we when I get called in to work with some of these great companies, usually what they're wanting is, um, you know, to continue to develop the culture, to help leaders develop more skills on how they manage and lead people and to help people and teams operate more effectively. I mean, that's really the kind of issues, you know, again, there's that great saying Peter Drucker said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Like you can have a great strategy, you can have a great product, a great service, but if people don't connect with each other, if there's not values that are in place that inspire people and something greater going on, it's very difficult for a team or an organization to function. My background, I, I, I grew up playing baseball. I was an athlete. And I got a chance to play in college at Stanford University. And then I got a chance to play professionally here in the U.S. with one of our pro baseball teams called the Kansas City Royals. I ended up getting injured relatively early into my pro career. Um, I was 23 when I got hurt and then 25 when I finally retired. Yeah, young, right? I mean, I started at seven. I get hurt at 23. Two years, three surgeries later on my pitching arm, I'm finally forced to retire. And I was super, I mean, I was devastated by the yeah, injury. Yeah, forced to lose the lottery. Really? I mean, it was like, it was the love of my life, quite frankly. I mean, yeah. I had done it for 18 of the first 25 years of my life. And as disappointed as I was, though, what I learned, I learned a bunch about myself and about dealing with adversity and resilience personally. But collectively, I had become fascinated by this notion that I was on some teams sometimes when, as an athlete where the talent on the team was unbelievable, but the team wasn't very good. Because like the egos and people's personalities and everyone was sort of more out for themselves and it just didn't work and it was super frustrating. And then I was on some other teams where the talent was, you know, decent, not like extraordinary and the team was fantastic. We would like beat other teams that had better players. And if you, whether you've played sports or you've ever watched sports, whether it's football or it's baseball here in the US or basketball, any other sport, you've probably noticed in your own experience of playing or watching, sometimes it's like, how come our team lost? We have really good players. Or how come, you know, we won and we, we shouldn't have beat that team? There's this thing in sports we call chemistry that no one can quite define, but it like brings the team together. And, and I loved that experience as an athlete and found it really interesting and fascinating. When I got my first job after baseball, I was working in sales for a tech company in San Francisco. And 
I immediately realized, oh, that whole team chemistry thing, that's not a sports thing. That's a human thing. In business, we just call it culture. It's that intangible thing, right? It's like what makes a great manager, a great leader, a lot of things. But like there's some quality that that leader has that like, hey, he or she knows how to connect with me. They know how to listen. They know how to communicate. They know how to inspire me. They know how to challenge me. They do all these things that like aren't really on their job description. They didn't really go to school to learn that. But again, a great team has those qualities, those intangible qualities of like we help each other out. We care about each other. I mean, I could be sitting in a room with engineers or with salespeople or with marketers or with people who work for a finance company or a tech company or a healthcare company or whatever. When I ask them this very simple question, think of the best team you've ever been a part of. What made that team so great? Everybody says the softest stuff. They always say, oh, it was just like we cared about each other. We believed in the mission. We had each other's backs. Like no one says oh, we had the most extraordinary technology ever, or we had the smartest people I've ever been around. I mean, sometimes that's a part of it, but it's usually those things that are intangible that really make a team great. And so for me, I've been fascinated by and obsessed with that for the last you know, 20 years I've had my business, but I was really fascinated by that even as a kid and as a teenager and as a young man when I was playing sports. And I've just continued to try to figure out what are those things and so much of my work and my books and when companies bring me and our team in is to focus on how do you enhance those intangible qualities that allow people individually and collectively to really thrive. So before I ask you what makes a great leader, I'll just touch on a point that you made there about ego. And I'll speak to my listener as well. Ego is the most useless emotion there is. And it's what costs me more professional pain than than <laughs> anything else. You know, If it wasn't for my ego, I'd probably be further on than it is right now. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, yeah, I mean, that goes into the, you know, about great leaders, right? I mean, it's, it's being aware of that. Um, and look, we all have an ego. It's just, are we aware of it and can we manage it to some degree? So it doesn't constantly run the show. You know, my, uh, my coach likes to say to me, Mike, just don't let your ego drive the bus all the time. Like you got to take the keys back and take over from the ego. So you're never going to kick it off the bus completely, but if he's running the show, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. I think it's good to, humility is a very important quality because that means you can learn from people and appreciate people. And when you are good at something, it stops you becoming egoistic and laying yes. down the law. Because if you are an expert at something and you see somebody make a mistake, it's tempting for you to go in and say, this is how it should be done. I'm speaking from a t technical perspective here, but it can apply to anything. And if the person right. resists that, it's like, how dare you? You know, And that's when the ego can rise up and you become a bit of a jerk. Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, and, and a couple of the things that I've seen over the years of both experiencing this, you know, studying leadership and working with a lot of great leaders and some that aren't so great, um, is, you know, there's a couple qualities that leaders have. One thing that leaders do, especially in the midst of uncertainty and chaos and stress and challenge like we're facing right now, is there's an ability to really tell the truth in an authentic way, not doom and gloom and not sort of happy talk, but real. And like the example, I just heard this recently. I thought this was such a great example. It's like being on an airplane. You know, when you're on an airplane and the, the, the pilot comes on and says, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We're going to hit some turbulence up ahead. So we've asked the flight attendants to take a seat. We're going to, you know, discontinue the service just till we get through this, these bumps, and we'll look for some, you know, better air so there aren't as many bumps, but just wanted to let you know, right? 
I usually appreciate that because then when we hit the bumps, even if it comes like 30 seconds or a minute later or maybe five or 10 minutes later, I know, okay, this is what he was talking about. And we hit the bumps. And even if they're really bumpy, I'm like, okay, he knows, he told us, we're, right? And we get through it. I don't really like turbulence on the airplane, even though I fly a lot. But the worst is when they don't say anything and you hit the bumps. And then you're like, what's going on? And then the bumps are that much scarier. And if they don't say anything at all, it's like, is he in charge? Does he know what's going on? What's happening? Or if they come on and say some version of like, oh, don't worry about it. No big deal. It's like, right, try to sort of diminish it. Then my anxiety level goes up. So what great leaders have an ability to do is tell the truth, let people know there are challenges right now or there are challenges ahead or, you know, some sense of an awareness about that to do it in a way that's real. I think a lot of times leaders will err on the side of either going to a really dark place if things are challenging, which scares everybody, or going to an overly optimistic place. While there is a place for optimism in leadership, absolutely, if you're trying to sugarcoat it, right, it doesn't work. So right now, as I'm talking to and working with a lot of leaders, it's like, how do you strike that balance of telling the truth about addressing the challenges that you face, the uncertainty that is here, but really doing it in a way that engenders a sense of confidence. And remember, people don't trust us because we have all the answers. They usually trust us because they know that we're willing and able to be authentic. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the research that I've done over the years has been about authenticity and how can not just leaders, but all of us as human beings show up in an authentic way. I think this crisis is a time for leadership to really shine because before leadership... Yep. It didn't matter life and death. It didn't really matter. When you are in crisis, you know, the leadership need is is amplified. And it's interesting to see how various governors are responding, various presidents are responding. Um, This this obviously is getting, this will be released a few days after it happened. But the New York governor, uh, amazing leadership right now from what he's saying. Um, Absolutely. He's very active, very presidential. For sure. And that's the thing. I love the saying, I don't even know who said it, but it's, you know, circumstances don't define us, they reveal us. Yeah. And I think to to your point earlier, most of these leaders, whether we're talking political leaders or, or, you know, company leaders, nobody was prepared for this per se. I mean, there are people in the governments of different countries that actually have been or smart experts, they've been preparing for this. So there are those, but the vast majority of us as parents, as professionals, as leaders in organizations, even as politicians, like there's no preparation for something like this. And when things get really hard and they get scary, what tends to happen is our true colors come out. And look, we're human, right? So we're going to have our moments. I I keep saying to everyone on my own team, as well as my family, like, look, we're going to have some low moments. We're going to snap at each other. We're going to get irritated. We're going to have like both the best and worst versions of ourselves show up. But from a leadership standpoint, can we allow ourselves to show up in these moments when we're really needed to? And, you know, a lot of times you learn a lot about people in the midst of a crisis, right? Because it's like, how do they respond and how do we treat each other? And a lot of things too, in business, it's like, if you can respond as authentically and as effectively as possible, not only is it necessary to your point, I mean, it can be life and death in the midst of a crisis, but it also creates an enormous amount of trust and confidence moving forward, knowing, I mean, and and it's a bonding experience. Think about people in your life, personally or professionally, when we go through a challenge together, 
how much stronger our relationships are on the other side. I mean, one of the things, again, without being trite or cliched about this, I keep saying to, we have two girls who are 14 and 11, and my wife, Michelle, and I keep saying to the girls, girls, we know this is crazy, we know this is hard, we know this is weird, and pay attention right now because you're going to be retelling the story of this experience for the rest of your life. Like your kids, your grandkids, they're going to be asking you about this. And, you know, I know that seems weird to think about right in this moment, but we're literally living through history in a way that you will never forget this. So let's all try to pay attention as best as we can. And what can we learn from this experience, not only to retell the story, but to make us better and stronger people on the other side of this? Yeah, I agree. That's certainly the biggest event in generations. Yeah. Um, I wish I could just say, yeah, this will be the only event that would happen. But the way things are changing and um, technology-wise, I think we'll have possibly more experiences like this in the future. We Maybe might. not the same way, but humanities, it's been under a lot of change. And Yeah. Uh, well, you know, one of the things, a friend and, and colleague of mine named Tony Schwartz wrote a book a few years back called The Way We're Working Isn't Working. And his premise of the book was basically to focus on there's so much coming at us. We're all trying to manage our time better, but what we really need to do is manage our energy. So if we manage our energy, not our time, we'll be more effective. So the book was really more about sort of personal productivity. But in a macro way, in terms of the title of that book, like I think, again, most people would agree, even if we argue about politics and philosophy and perspective, like the way the world operates in so many ways, and I say this as an optimist, by the way, doesn't work. Like it doesn't work. We have to, you know, and right now, I, again, without being overly philosophical about it in a weird way, I feel like right now the world is sort of saying, the planet is saying, whatever you believe is saying, hey, everyone, we need a timeout. We have to pause <laughs> and reflect, right? I mean, it's literally like it's forcing us all to stop and go, wait a minute. You know, and they're saying that there are places like in, I, I've been reading stuff about in China and, you know, in Venice and places of, of where there's been all this pollution that by the people going inside to stay away from the virus, all of this, the air is clearer and the water's cleaner. And, you know, of course that makes sense if all of a sudden you say, we're not going to let the people show up. And, but again, just as physical reminders of, hey, maybe there's a different way for us to relate to the planet. Maybe there's a different way for us to operate economically. Maybe, you know, and I do think there's some truth in that. And if, again, if we can take that lesson and hopefully, you know, knock on wood or cross our fingers or whatever, that we'll be, w most of us will survive this physically, not to diminish or minimize those that won't or those that get sick or are impacted by it. But does it allow us to change in ways we need to change both personally, organizationally, and more collectively on the other side of it? I mean, that's the opportunity. I remember years ago, a, a therapist of mine, I was going through a really hard time. She said to me, Mike, don't waste a good crisis. And I was like, what? And she's like, look, you're going through hell right now. Personally, it's really hard. I'm not trying to minimize it. But like, first of all, whenever you're going through hell, keep going. Like, don't get stuck. Just keep going. But stay open, learn, listen, pay attention. And the other side of this, you will get through this difficult time. We always do. But you can be a different and better and stronger human being on the other side of it if you choose to use this as an opportunity for growth. If you simply just avoid it, deny it, push against it, resist it, think it's all bad and wrong and just try to get to the other side so you feel better, you're going to miss the, the the blessing of this difficult time. And I, I didn't fully appreciate what she was saying in the moment because I was in a lot of pain personally, but I knew there was wisdom in it and I did take what she said to heart and it helped me not only get through that experience, 
But I try to think about that now when I'm going through something personally that's difficult and challenging. And now this thing collectively is forcing all of us to go through something quite uncomfortable. I do think we all have an opportunity here, as I've been saying many times and in different ways in this conversation, that this can be beneficial to us if we allow it. Yeah, the, the planet's certainly um, we're going through a breather right now. And you have to, you have to think, <laughs> do we really need so much economic activity, travel, manufacturing? Maybe we don't need to work as hard. Maybe, just, maybe the world can work a three-day week or a four-day week. And, right. You know, so like what is really essential for, for existence, you know? Right. Well, and I think a lot of times, like, again, I think there are things that happen in life when something happens and, we, and it intervenes. Like when we get sick, just regular sick, like you get the regular flu and you're stuck in bed. It's no fun, but you stop and realize, oh, my body's telling me I have to take a break. I need to pause. All of those meetings and emails and things that seem so important become less important or even more significantly someone in our life gets really sick or someone passes away or something tragic happens. One of the silver linings of those experiences, I know in my life when that's happened and having lost both of my parents and my sister, I've gone through some significant moments and times of grief. What I appreciate about those times, as painful as they were, is it literally all the BS of life literally just went away. It was like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And not in a, I don't care, like cynical way, but just like, that's not important. What comes right to the front in those moments are who matters and what matters. And what I would realize is like, oh, my busy ass life that I'm running around all the time thinking it's so important. A lot of that stuff is optional and, and it recalibrates priorities and it recalibrates like what and who matters. And again, I think Maybe we don't have to create a global pandemic or a crisis or a health crisis or a death in the family or something in order to do that. Like that's the challenge I think we have individually and collectively is how do we bring forth that level of awareness and consciousness proactively on a regular basis so it doesn't take some catastrophic event to knock us on our collective you-know-whats in order to wake us up. Yeah, I wish that could be the case, but history probably teaches us otherwise. You know, people probably... Give it a, a year or two after this, and news will probably still be as boring as it was before about you know like <laughs> irrelevant things compared to like this, which is like a whole right ten years worth of news in one day, every day. I know. You know, it's true. I mean, maybe look, maybe some of that's just the natural ebb and flow of life, right? Things will get back to quote unquote normal. I mean, I'll be looking forward to the day when you know the biggest story of the day is some. <laughs> celebrity gossip or some, you know, in, 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 in the UK, some royal scandal or some whatever, do you know what I mean? That we're like, um, but it does put things in perspective. And, you know, my 14 year old actually said something really simple, but wise the other day that I very much appreciated. She said, dad, you know, what's great about this when this is all over, we're going to appreciate so many things so much more. Yeah. Like she's like, I'm going to appreciate spending time with my friends. I'm going to appreciate going to school. I'm going to appreciate all these things that like, I didn't really think about and it just, it warmed my heart to hear her say that, even though I know she's having a tough time. Like she's 14 years old and a very social teenager. She wants to hang out with her friends and do stuff and go back to school and interact. And we canceled our, you know, spring break trip we were going to take and all these things in her world that are a really big deal. And, you know, that isn't, you know, life and death type stuff. But when you're 14 years old, those are big things. But to have that kind of awareness, again, what might the potential positive impact of that be on her and her mindset as she moves forward? Like this is a significant moment in all of our lives, but you know, I look at my 11 year old and my 14 year old and think, I wonder how this might potentially impact them 
moving forward, it's going to be really interesting to see. Yeah. I wonder if we'll keep our hygiene habits that we've developed through this crisis. I know. You know, it's funny. Like, I'm I'm not someone who washes my hands all that to the point where my wife is like, come on, wash your hands. What are you, like five years old? But it's so funny. Like, I've been washing my hands so much. I literally have, like, calluses on my knuckles from washing my hands so much, which is bizarre. And, yeah, I mean, it's like I don't normally think about germs and things and uh you know i mean and again i'm hoping in a positive way we can remember that i don't want to walk around though paranoid to like shake people's hands and give them high fives and give them hugs and all that stuff because you know that's something i know for myself right now that i'm missing a lot i don't realize how much human contact and interaction i have um that is you know and even here at home with our the four of us me and my wife and my two girls like i'm noticing even to go give my wife a hug and a kiss i have this moment of hesitancy and i'm like wait a minute yeah. we're all together so if i've got it you've got it but it's just this this fear of other humans which is so interesting that uh you know hopefully the negative part of that doesn't stick with us but maybe the positive hygiene part does yeah the back of my mind i think maybe we dodged I dodged a bullet because imagine if this virus had a mortality rate as high as say AIDS or something like that and you know like 20% right. 30% we would have a totally different situation you'd have no, you can't really imagine where it would be like a real Hollywood disaster movie as bad as it is and I don't want to diminish how bad it's been I mean the horrible scenes in hospitals in Italy and all these, these countries UK you know almost 500 deaths it's terrible 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 right. Right, but we're still able to get food and waterworks yeah. and petrol it's on true. cars. Um, if this is just, if, if if this mutation had been like somehow worse in a way that the, the mortality rate was ten percent, twenty percent, we we can't imagine what would happen. We just be, well, look. You're right. And I look, again, as someone who's an optimist by nature, I also think there is a really healthy and productive approach that we can take to a lot of things where the notion that this could always be worse again it almost seems like well that's kind of a negative way to think about things but the truth is with anything it could you know and whenever we're dealing with something i mean again i would imagine just as an example a month or two ago whatever biggest stress was going on in our life probably seems minor in comparison to this yeah sure relatively speaking. So sometimes, again, it's like, be careful what we complain about or what we get stressed out about. Because I remember years ago, someone said this great thing to me, like, your problems are too small. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, stop focusing so much on your problems. You keep having these problems and they're small and you're trying to solve them. But she said to me, she's like, if I took out a knife or a big machete and I chopped off your arm, all your problems would go away. You'd have one big painful problem, (laughs) right? Yeah. And she said, so, but, but she said that what we want to do in life is really try to address really big problems that inspire us, you know, like what really lights us up. I think there's a great quote from Martin Luther King. He said, if you haven't found something to die for, you haven't created a life worth living. And that's kind of melodramatic in a way, but it's like, what are we really committed to? What are we really up to solve? If we're going to tackle a problem, is it really going to be a simple problem of, how do I address this thing that's kind of annoying in my life or make a little more money or do a little thing here or there? Or is it, do I want to really take on something big? And there are people that I really admire and that inspire me in my life. And there I have this friend, Glennon, and she says she likes to wake up in the morning and really think about what's breaking her heart right now in the world and how can she run towards that and try to do something to address it as opposed to 
run away from it because it's painful. And I just think like, you know, not all of us are wired that way or our lives are set up that way to do that kind of work. But, you know, maybe again, another silver lining in this experience is it has us reevaluate what am I doing and why am I doing it? And is there something bigger and greater that I want to be focused my attention on because the world could use it. And truth in the midst of challenge is one, you know, another aspect of it, which I was relating to or referring to is authenticity. And the way that I define authenticity is honesty without self-righteousness and with vulnerability. So the self-righteousness is that thing we were talking about earlier with the ego. Self-righteousness is I'm right, you're wrong. And it's okay if leaders have strong opinions. It's okay if leaders speak up. It's okay, you know, like you said, in some cases, they're real experts. They might know a lot of stuff. You know, you might be my boss and you have a ton of expertise. I want to know that. I want you to impart that. But there's a way in which we can give feedback or share our wisdom or share our experience or share our expertise that's not coming from a self-righteous place, right? We take out the ego part of it. We have some humility. And there's a difference between self-righteousness, which is I'm right, you're wrong, and conviction, which is I believe this to be true. I'm willing to speak up about it. I'm willing to offer my opinion, my perspective, my feedback, my whatever, but we realize a couple of things. First of all, I might be wrong. And second of all, even if I can't fully acknowledge I might be wrong, at the very least, there's probably other ways to look at this thing that I can't currently see. So great leaders have the ability to both have confidence in their ability and their experience and their wisdom and right, but also be open to sometimes someone with no experience at all has a great idea because they bring sort of a beginner's mind to it. So... Can we be honest? Can we remove the self-righteousness? And then adding vulnerability means a willingness to embrace our humanity. You know, one of the best things that leaders can do right now without freaking everyone out around them is just be real about how they're actually feeling. You know, I trust someone more when they tell me I'm feeling nervous or I'm feeling, you know, angry or confused or whatever. real right? Oh, okay, good. I can relate to that. You know, again, acting like I'm fine. It's all fine. It's going to be great. We got this. You know, if that's genuine, great. But usually that's not what's actually happening. And so, you know, a leader's ability to be authentic and, you know, be honest, remove the self-righteousness, add the vulnerability. And then the third thing that I've seen over the years in my own research and my own work that makes great leadership is an ability to appreciate people. And when I say appreciate there's a really simple but important distinction that I've learned over the years of studying this, the difference between recognition and appreciation, both of which are important, both of which leaders need to be able to understand and embody and communicate. But recognition is positive feedback based on results, based on performance, based on outcome. It's basically responding to either formally with like an award, a bonus, a promotion, a, an award of some kind of right here, you did a great job or more informally, just like, hey, way to go. That was awesome. Whatever, you know, some but that's all a reaction to an outcome. Appreciation is about recognizing people's value. Intrinsic about, value, yeah. Yeah, intrinsic value, who they are versus what they do. I heard, I heard the best way I heard appreciation described years ago, I heard Oprah Winfrey say this. She said, I've interviewed thousands and thousands and thousands of people in my career, everybody, presidents, prime ministers, celebrities, children, people who've gone through tragedies, people who've been incarcerated. Like you name the type of person Oprah said, I've interviewed them. She said, after all these years, and all these interviews, she said, do you know that just about every single person that I've ever interviewed asks me some version of the same question when the interview's over? Camera shuts off, interview's over, they lean over and they say, how'd I do? Or was that okay? 
some yeah. version of that question. And she said, you know, early in my career, I used to be really confused by this question because I'd be sitting across from someone who's very successful and accomplished. And I'd be wondering to myself, <laughs> are they really, are they really that insecure? Right. Do they really need my validation? Like, why are they asking me how they did? She goes, then I realized something. They're not actually asking me how they did. She said, you know what they're really asking me? Did you see me? Did you hear me? Did what I say matter to you? Right. And she said, and I agree with her, everybody's asking those questions. So what great leaders have the ability to do, it doesn't mean you like everyone, everyone's your best friend. It doesn't mean you have to be happy and positive all the time. What it means is in the midst of everything, in the midst of people's performance and their attitudes and their behaviors and their personalities and all that, right? The challenges, the ones you like, the one, can you see people and hear people and let them know you matter? You, the human you, not just what you do, not just what you say, not just like, but like, the person. And when you think about, when most of us think about the best leaders we've ever worked with or for or been around, there's different personalities, different styles, but there's usually some sense of this person cared about me and valued me, wanted me to succeed. And that's actually not that hard to do. It just takes some attention and some intention. So anyone can be great at appreciating people if they're willing to just focus on it. Yeah, because appreciation is uh, it's required it's, or it's, it's intrinsically needed, but recognition is optional. It's only for ego, right. really, I guess. <laughs> but it's nice to have recognition well, as well. <laughs> it is. I mean, and I always say this. I say recognize people when they deserve it. Don't give it out just to give it out. One of the things we have a tendency to do, and we do this here in the U.S., sort of ad nauseum, awesome, great job, way to go. You know, and it's like, okay, if it really is a great job, then say so. Otherwise, don't just blow smoke. Like, that's not valuable. If everybody gets a trophy, if everybody gets a medal, the trophy or the medal becomes meaningless. And it is an ego exercise. But look, if you do a great job on something, if I do a great job and really produce a great result, being recognized for it, whether it's a public thing that is a little bit ego-focused or even just a private thing, there can be real value in that. There are some awards or some recognitions, formal and informal, that I've received over the years that are super meaningful to me. I'm really proud of them. I worked really hard, and that meant something to get that yeah. piece of recognition. But appreciation is appropriate and necessary all the time, whether yeah. things are going great or terrible, whether someone's doing awesome job or terrible, whether someone has the best attitude. All of us want and need to be appreciated. And but recognition is only like, again, like, let's just say right now with what's going on in the economy, I mean, most in most situations, companies are not having meetings right now, virtually even where we're getting together and go, OK, let's talk about the results from last month or last week. They were awesome. Let's celebrate them. I mean, unless maybe, you know, you work for Zoom or you work for Netflix or you work for a handful of businesses right now that everybody's utilizing that service because of what's going on. The vast majority of businesses right now as a company, and that would mean most of the individuals in the company, it's hard to produce results in an environment where things are so difficult, right? That doesn't yeah. mean there's no recognition. But so in general, if we just focus on, you know, and I'm saying this as a former athlete that was all about my training all growing up was about winning. It was about producing. It was about results. The sport of baseball is filled with so many statistical measures. It's ridiculous. So you literally were judged based on all of these sort of outcomes and results. And what I found over the years with that is that while that made sense in the context of playing baseball, it was incredibly stressful on a human level. Because I was constantly feeling like I was only as good as my last game. I was only as good as my statistics. And there's a practical reality to that. If you're in a sales role in a company and you and I are both in sales and you sell 
2x what I sell, you should get compensated more and get recognized more than me because you sold more stuff than me. Like that's the game we're playing. So in that regard, you are more valuable to the company than I am. You're producing more results than I am. We all understand that. We're grownups. We can get that. But as human beings, you're not a more valuable human being than I am simply because you're selling more stuff than me. And sadly, what we tend to do because we focus on results so much, the person who sells more stuff or the person who produces more results or the person who has the bigger title gets treated like a more valuable human Yeah. when they're not. They might be more valuable in the role that they have or the result they produce. Again, the superstar on the, on the sports team, the best player on the football team is more valuable to the team than the person who sits on the bench and doesn't play in terms of the team being successful, they're just not, there's no difference in their value as humans. And I know that sounds sort of philosophical and subtle, but it's profound. And leaders who operate that way, they treat everybody on the team with the same level of value and appreciation as humans. And they recognize people differently based on people's performance and result actually creates a really health and healthy and safe environment. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody is intrinsically valuable and people's stories are just as interesting depend doesn't matter if they're super successful or not everybody has an interesting story to tell everybody has experiences that are worth listening to totally it is interesting you know what's funny about that you're absolutely right and what's funny is we though we do listen to people's story differently right because again i sometimes will laugh and say even to my wife or i'll hear some celebrity or some politician or some extraordinarily successful business person tell their story right and it's fascinating and i'm riveted and i think to myself now am i really riveted by the story or am I riveted because I'm impressed with their success and I'm curious about the story? Do you know what I mean? And it's truthfully, it's a little bit of both. If it wasn't, you know, I don't know, Bill Gates or somebody who's telling the story, if it wasn't, you know, this person or this whatever, I probably wouldn't be listening because I wouldn't know who they are and I wouldn't get a chance to hear their story. Yeah. But you're right. But everybody's story is fascinating. And when we come to the table with that perspective, the curiosity, great leaders are also curious, not nosy, <laughs> although I have a tendency to be a little bit of both. But <laughs> Curious about people's stories, you know, and, and I used Oprah Winfrey as an example. One of the many things that makes Oprah Winfrey really, really good at what she does is she's incredibly curious and fascinated by human beings, whether she's sitting and talking to a movie star or an author or a thought leader or, you know, just an everyday person who's going through life, like the curiosity of trying to understand what's going on in this person's life, in this person's world and how can she ask questions that make people feel safe enough and bring it out so that we can all go, oh, wow, I can relate to that. Yeah, I guess it can't be, can't be faked if you're genuinely interested in something. Otherwise, you just won't have the strength to keep, keep doing it, producing those interviews. Totally. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And I, I watch her sometimes with, with amazement that over all these years and all the different iterations of her career and what she's done, that she stays engaged and really authentically enthusiastic and curious about stuff. Um, you know, it's one of the things, I mean, curiosity is also a fantastic practice for us in terms of being able to learn and grow. We've been talking a lot about, you know, the coronavirus and everything that's going on in the world. Like, can we stay in a place of curiosity about this? You know, I was working out this morning and I had this moment where I thought, this is really cool. And then I had, oh, I'm not supposed to think that right now because this is awful, right? Like I was having this conversation in my head. But I was like, well, what am I thinking is cool about it? It's not cool, again, not to minimize the challenge, but like this is a really fascinating human experience that I'm having and I'm sure many millions and millions of people around the world are having right now. Like I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what's going to happen to my life and to my business and to my family. And while that does elicit some fear in me and 
I'm also really in super engaged right now in life and in my business in a way that I wasn't in the same way a month ago. And again, if we can stay in a place of curiosity, oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, isn't that interesting? But really be curious. Then it helps us from staying, getting stuck in those negative stories of like, oh, this is terrible or, oh, I'm never going to recover. We're never going to, you know, because that's what happens with negativity is it just starts spiraling on itself and then our minds take over and we go into those crazy, deep, dark places. Yeah. But let's be honest, it would be nicer to just like, if we didn't have to live through this in like five years time, we just sat down and watched some five part Netflix series on the crisis <laughs> of 2020, you know? That is true. You're right. It'd be easier to do this in theory than in practice. Preferably yeah. in the Burger King or like in some nice restaurant or some somewhere on an airplane, you know, right. <laughs> full right. of people. It's true. No, it's definitely true. And, and I think, you know, there's a great quote that I love from an author and philosopher named Byron Katie. She says, when you argue with reality, you lose, but only a hundred percent of the time. And I think again, you know, not that we wish something like this onto any of us, but I do think there's an element of life. If we take it out of the context of this serious situation that we're in right now, it's like, how can we go through life more curious and embracing more of the experiences that come our way, right? We add the judgment on top of it. This is good. This is bad. This is easy. This is hard. When in reality, there's just experiences that we're having and most even difficult experiences when we get through them and look back, like you say, five years from now, when we're telling the story about this, it's going to be very different than living through it. The challenge of really adopting and living with a growth mindset is to take it in the moment. When I look back on like my baseball career ending, which was traumatic and horrible at the time, I now see a ton of blessings that came from that and learning and growth. And like, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if that hadn't happened that way, I don't think, because it set up my life in so many ways that got me on the path that I am. I wouldn't have married my wife. I wouldn't have my child. I mean, there's so many things. There are pivotal moments in our lives where things change. And even though we can acknowledge they're bad and they're painful in the moment, when we have enough time and distance and space and we do get through those and we're on the other side of them, we can often look back and go, oh, I see why that happened or I understand that better. I have more appreciation for that. The challenge is to be able to do that in the midst of it. And that, back to your question about what makes great leadership, without sugarcoating it or pretending it's fine, great leaders have the wisdom and the perspective to be able to have a bit of a long view in the midst of a short-term crisis because that's what people are looking for. They're not looking for false optimism or false hope. They're looking for someone they can lean on and trust and follow, if you will, through, you know, the proverbial forest. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes what, what, quite frankly, what we need to do is be leaders for ourselves. Cause I don't know about you, but sometimes like I'm looking around to, over my shoulder from time to time, like, where's the grown-up going to show up and tell me what to do here? And then I realize, like, oh, I'm the grown-up. i got to figure this thing out. <laughs> <laughs> so who in the world stage has impressed you right now? Oh, well, I think, you know, the governor of New York, you mentioned Andrew Cuomo, has been impressive. There's also a doctor here in the U.S., um, Dr. Fauci, who's, you know, running the, the Center for Disease Control here in the United States, who, you know, is a real expert in these um, type of situations who's been incredibly impressive. Um, you know, my worldview as many Americans are is so American focused. So, so much of the news we see for better or worse is so much focused on this, uh, this country. Although there've been a number of European leaders and others that I've heard speak or talk about this that have been impressive to me. 
about it. And I also, um, you know, our former president here in the U.S., Barack Obama and his wife, Michelle, it's just been remarkable to me just to see posts on Instagram and things where, you know, their focus is so much about how can we be of service? How can we be mindful of other people in our communities and people who are impacted by this significantly? Like Michelle Obama put out a whole post that had all these recommendations of here's ways you can help right now. And they were things as simple as call a friend and see how they're doing to like, you know, if you, if you have the ability to give some money to this organization or to your local hairdresser that nobody's coming to see them right now, maybe you had an appointment, maybe you pay for the appointment if you have the financial means to do that or things like that. It just left me feeling with this sense of hope and optimism and like, yeah, let's think about each other in the midst of this. You know, look, I think it's easier as a former president, if you will, or someone who's not in the political sphere at the moment to kind of take that higher ground. But I appreciate when, uh, when those things can happen. Is, he, is Obama given any televised interviews? He's done very little. You know, I mean, I think he's try. He will, you know, once uh, once we have a, a nominee that's going to run against, you know, Donald Trump in the presidential election, I think Barack Obama will be out front and center much more publicly, you know, campaigning for that nominee. It would be nice to have uh, give I, a talk on, on his thoughts on the virus. It would. It really would. I mean, I think, you know, like a lot of in the U.S., part of the you know, uh, sort of standard thing that former presidents do is they try to stay out of the way and out of the headlines as much as they can. He's come forward a handful of times in the last three years since he left uh, office and made a few speeches and a few statements. Um, and of course, they got a lot of attention. And, you know, the, our current president likes to spend a lot of time saying mean, nasty things about lots of people, including his uh, his predecessor. So it's it's interesting. But Obama seems to mostly take the high road, but it would be really good to hear from him. I, I agree with you. I think a lot of people are curious as to, you know, his take, and and he's put out a few statements. But we well, haven't. Why did past uh, presidents stay out of focus? At least you know, I think current term. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, look, America's so crazy, full of paradox and and irony in so many ways. But there is this sort of notion of, you know, hey, let's let the current president do his thing, and hopefully one day it'll be a her thing. But um you know, and let them do it without us sort of intervening and commenting on what's going on, because then that just creates more division and more sort of divisiveness and back and forth. Uh, I mean, again, when I fast forward to the day that Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States, I do not think he's going to follow that same uh, protocol of not speaking up and speaking out about his opinions about what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, yeah, I mean, and we're, you know, we're just at a really interesting time here politically in in the United States, as is true in England, as is true in many places in Europe and around the world. Um, and, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see. I mean, my hope, as we've been talking about in different ways throughout this conversation, is that part of what comes out of this pandemic is some sense of how interconnected we all are. And it's OK for us to disagree and debate about political issues. We need to do that. That's part of a healthy democracy and a healthy you know, culture. There are many countries in the world where that doesn't even take place or you're not allowed to do that. And at the same time, when it comes to something like this, it shouldn't matter our political affiliation or our perspective. It should really matter how do we take care of people and how do we make sure people are safe and well and, you know, physically and financially and otherwise. And that's one of the main functions of government. So we got to figure out how we all get along and remember that, you know, we're all in this thing together. Yeah. Boris Johnson's impressed me quite a lot with his... Has he? Yeah, with his speeches and... He's saying some really difficult things for him to say, 
but uh, he's done. A, he's doing a good job, I think. Uh, That's good. Holding it together, yeah. People will yeah. say otherwise, but you know, I'm, I'm just impressed with his stature at this time. Sure. Well, and I think a lot of times we we all see it through the the political lens. You know, if we if we agree with or voted for or like a politician, we tend to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume they're handling it well. If we didn't, we tend to not. But there are certain moments, like I remember when we went through 9/11, George W. Bush, who was our president at the time, did a number of things that, um, and I wasn't. You know, I didn't vote for him and I didn't agree with him politically, but I was really impressed with the moments that he showed up and stood up and. You know, there are moments like that. The mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, um, was unbelievable during 9-11 and afterwards. Yeah. And so, you know, countries and, and cities and places need those types of people. Um, and hopefully there's a way in which, again, we can get beyond political affiliation and just really look to our leaders and trust that they're going to try to do the best they can for what's in the best interest of most people. You know, and look, in the midst of a crisis, too, I think people also want to place blame and look for a reason like whose fault is it? And in some cases, like, of course the government can always do things differently and better and we can have opinions about it. But sometimes there's no real fault. It's just like, this is a really difficult situation, um, that everyone's trying to deal with as best they can. And again, my sense about it is we're going to learn a ton from this and, you know, God forbid if it happens again, anytime soon, hopefully we'll be even better prepared the next time around. Cause we know a lot more now than we did, uh, just a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that was a fantastic interview. Um, yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation, and I really appreciate getting to chat with you and everybody listening. Yeah, it's been, it's been great to have you on, Mike, and uh, we'll definitely have one on the show again, whether it's like this or a conference. We're um, going to be doing some conferencing with great. past guests, and then we've got the technology to do it, and it'll be make for some interesting podcasts. Um, yeah. Thanks again for having me. Thank you, buddy. And how do people get in touch with you? I should, sorry, I should have said this at the start. <laughs> oh, well, the best place to get in touch with me is at our website, which is mike-robbins.com. And we uh, we set up a special page about my new book. It's mike-robbins.com forward slash together. People can learn all about the book there. And there's some free uh, bonus material that folks get on that page when they order the book from there. Great. Okay. Thanks very much, buddy. Absolutely. Have a good one. See you, buddy. Thanks. And thank you, my all listener, right. for joining us on, on our Infencers Cafe. And uh, wish you all the best for this um, difficult time. And we'll see you again shortly on Infencers Cafe. Bye-bye.